thank you for joining us today. I am your host, Richard Cohn, and today we have the pleasure of talking with Douglas Knoll. Uh, Douglas is the author of De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. Not only is he an award-winning author, teacher, and trainer, but also a highly successful trial lawyer and experienced mediator. He co-founded Prison of Peace in 2009, which is already integrated into more than 10 California prisons and is being adopted in prisons domestically as well as abroad. It is a program to give prisoners the needed skills to end fighting and arguing in their prison community. Douglas, I, I can't think of a more appropriate time for our guests, for our listeners to have an opportunity to hear the skills and tools that you have learned and have applied in your work. Uh, these are times of uh, tremendous discord, um, political divisions, lots of arguing, lots of anger. Um, when we look at even today, when we look at the police brutality, the protests and the racism, it is easy for the average person to become very enraged. And as individual citizens, what do you feel we can do to help make a difference? Thank you, Richard. What I am teaching these days is how to help people feel like they're making a difference um, one person at a time. And uh, the, the, you're right about the outrage, the anger, and of course the anxiety and stress that both the pandemic and the economic collapse is imposing on everyone. What I have learned and what I'm teaching to my students is that you can make a huge difference just in the immediate circle that you exist in. So for example, if you're out for a walk, we're social distancing, wearing masks, I hope, uh, but we run across neighbors. And even neighbors that we, we may not even know very well, but if we just stop for a second and say, hi, how are you holding up? And then use the skills that I teach um, about how to, li how to listen, we can validate people in a way that they've never experienced before and create a connection that they've never experienced before. And in that way, one person at a time make a huge difference, even just in the neighborhoods that we live in. And that's, that's what's really, that's the key thing. If, if we think that going out on the street and protesting is useful, well, it is, but my experience has been 20 years as a peacemaker, the protests draw attention to serious problems like racism, endemic problems that have existed for hundreds of years. But at the end of the day, they don't solve any problems. And what we really need are people engaged in deep listening uh, that then allows us to engage in deep conversations that lead, hopefully lead to, to the problem solving that everybody is, is hoping for and asking for. So that's the real secret. And it, as my students report, when they just go outside and walk around and contact, you know, make contact with people and listen to them, they find that they're doing a great service to themselves and to other people. It's just, it's really powerful. You know, you, you mentioned when people just in their local communities walk around, 
let's say they are wearing a mask and they come upon their neighbors who aren't wearing a mask. I, I've noticed that people wearing the mask tend to then try to avoid others or uh, feel, uh, in some cases, internally feel anger that no one else is respecting what they respect. Um, how, do you, how do you suggest people deal with that, or should they just not say anything? Well, the, uh, you're right. it's an interesting problem. Wearing a mask has been highly politicized, uh, which is really, really sad because it's, I mean, the science is showing that wearing a mask and social distancing prevents the spread of COVID, and that's what we need right now. Unfortunately, there are people in politics who have eschewed wearing masks and have basically said wearing a mask is equivalent to being a communist. And so there are many people who believe that wearing a mask is wrong. It infringes on their freedoms. Um, but I guess that's the great thing about freedom is you can do whatever you want <laughs> uh, within, as long as you take personal responsibility for yourself. My response is to not get angry. Uh, in fact, uh, it, it's really more I have compassion for people who don't feel like they need to wear a mask. Um, they are putting themselves at risk. They're not putting me at risk, but they are putting other people at risk. And, and I have compassion for that because they just simply don't understand the risks of this disease. So, but if I am going to engage in them, I'm not going to say anything, but what I am going to do is listen. And the kind of listening that I'm talking of, there are four levels of listening. And, uh, and what I teach is how to engage at the fourth level, which is listening to emotions. In other words, we ignore the words and simply listen to what people's emotional experiences are, and then reflect back those emotions with a simple use statement. So I could say something like, well, you're really frustrated, you're really angry. I, or maybe I come across somebody and I'm wearing a mask and they're not, and they're giving me the, that look that you get you know, in the post office. Uh, and, and I say, you're frustrated by all of this, and you're frustrated about the pandemic, and you're frustrated about mask wearing, and the whole thing just really pisses you off. And that's all I have to say. Because I'm reflecting their emotional state, and all of a sudden they'll open up and start talking, and start talking about their frustrations and their anxieties and, and their anger. And as I reflect all of those emotions that are coming up, up with them, they feel validated in a really deep way. And that's the basis for finding common ground. And I may radically disagree with their political beliefs and with their beliefs around the pandemic and COVID. Uh, but that, it, the fact that we disagree is not important. What's important is that they, I'm, I'm allowing, I'm, I'm validating their experience without judging whether I agree with it or not. And it's that validation process that creates the connection that allows for a conversation later on about all of this stuff. If I invalidate them or, or judge them, then there's no space for conversation and there will be no agreement, and we will simply become more polarized. And that's the fundamental secret of what I teach and what we experience in, in these skills. In your book, you talk about the six needs of victims and how we can satisfy them. Right. The, um, so there, in every conflict, doesn't matter how intense the conflict is. Everybody feels like a, they're a victim, even in crime. 
the offender feels victimized. Of course, the victim of the crime is victimized. The community is victimized. And what I found as a peacemaker and a mediator is that if you want to help people resolve conflict and find peace, these six needs have to be met. And the six needs are these. First, the first is vengeance, the need to hurt another person, seek revenge. I'm going to hurt you more than you hurt me. Um, vengeance is an interesting anticipatory emotion in the sense that whenever we have thoughts of vengeance, we get a dopamine release, so we feel good about it. We get pleasure out of thinking about uh, exacting revenge on somebody who harmed us. The perversion of our evolutionary biology is that when we, if we get to exact revenge, there is no dopamine release, and so we feel let down. We feel, and, and, and to the degree that in the retributive justice system, justice equals punishment, if we don't feel pleasure, the anticipated pleasure of exacting revenge by punishing somebody with state-sanctioned violence, um, then we feel like there hasn't been enough justice, and that's what led to three strikes and the mass incarceration movement and everything else. And vengeance also leads to the violence cycles in, in many honor societies. Uh, where honor is, is, is an important attribute of a, of a given culture. So we've got vengeance. Then we have vindication, the need to be right. We have validation, the need to be acknowledged and recognized and validated as a human being. Those are the three Vs, vengeance, validate, uh, vindication, validation. And then we have the need to be heard, and we have the need to create meaning. The need to create meaning arises typically in more traumatic conflicts, where uh, reality has been shattered and people have to make a new meaning out of their lives. And so what they will do is try to find a transcendent meaning out of all this. And so you will hear people say something like, I never want, this is not about me. I just want to make sure nobody else has the same experience that I've had. Or I just want to make sure that, you know, all, all I really care about is making sure that nobody else ever suffers like I have. What, what people are saying when they're saying that is I'm trying to re rebuild my reality and make it not about me, but make it about a much bigger thing that's transcendent above my own individual self so that it creates more meaning for me. So there's some meaning. There's some reason that I can take out of this horrible, traumatic event. And then the last need is the need for safety. Physical safety, of course, emotional safety, more difficult to come by. And then the most difficult of all is spiritual safety. And the spiritual safety, I added that into the mix while I was mediating um, clergy sexual abuse cases and uh, recognized that the victim survivors of clergy abuse, sexual abuse, had basically feel like they've been raped by God. And they one of their great needs was spiritual safety. So that's why I included that. Now, here's what I've learned. These six needs, if these six needs are not met, the conflict will persist and at whatever level, whether it's an argument, an estrangement, or even war. When you meet the need to be heard, which is the number four need, the need to be heard. When that need is satisfied, all of the other needs are satisfied and the need for vengeance goes away. It's the most amazing process and transformation that I've ever seen. So we want to be aware of these six needs and be aware of the fact that everybody has these needs, especially when conflict arises. And also be aware of the fact that we satisfy these needs by listening to people, listening to their emotions. And when we do that, need, the needs are satisfied, the conflict dissipates, and now we can engage in a constructive conversation or negotiation about how to 
how to fix the problem and how to prevent it from happening in the future. When you see things like we're experiencing now where it seems once a week or once every couple of weeks there's an incident where there's police brutality or police shootings, and that's followed by uh, demonstrations. Uh, we have the Black Lives Matter movement, and we have militia, armed militias trying to defend property from people destroying it. When you have two confronting groups, uh, how would you, if you were called into a situation like that, is there a way to diffuse that anger or to allow both sides to be heard? That would be a big task. Yes. The, the answer is yes. There is a way to deal with the anger, which is a righteous anger in many cases, for, on, on either side of the table. The key is to the, the secret and the, and the ch great challenge is getting people to come to the table to talk. What I have found is that when people are at peace, talking about peace and peacemakers and mediators is wonderful. Think, people think it's a great idea. But when they get into a deep conflict where they feel like there has been a, a severe abuse, I mean, just like this most recent shooting in Wisconsin, Kenosha, uh, different parts of the brain activate. And the last thing that people want to do is talk about peace. The last thing they want to do is sit down at the table with the people that they feel have violated them and talk to them. All they want to do, is, this is the vengeance cycle that I was talking about earlier, all they really want to do is get out and and hit back hard. And people do it nonviolently. I mean, by far by far and away, most of the protests have been nonviolent. Been, obviously, Portland has been an exception, and there are other places where there has been violence. Uh, however... People are not willing to sit down and talk. And, and if you and if you look at the other side of the table, whether it, it is the police, law enforcement, they're not willing to talk either. They don't want to talk because they are deathly afraid that they're going to be emasculated or power is going to be taken away from them. And they feel that they're righteous and they're upholding the law and they're doing the right thing. And so it's a kind of a, it's a circle of the wagons kind of thing. So they don't want to talk to, to anybody on the outside of the law enforcement circle. And then, then you get the um, supporters of law enforcement or the people who are white supremacists or militia people or whatever. They don't want to talk either because their identity is being threatened by all of this. And, and when identity is threatened, you know, people, people don't think that they can negotiate their identity. So they're going to do everything they can to protect it up to and including violence. So the trick is getting people to want to come to the table and sit down and listen to each other. And that's extremely difficult. Uh, and, and it's not impossible, but it is extremely difficult, and it takes very skilled and talented facilitators to make that happen. And, and the one thing that I'm observing, that I've observed throughout the pandemic uh, and Black, the Black Lives Matters and all, of, all the protests, is that I'm not reading anywhere in the media where facilitators are coming in uh, to basically get, see if they can get people to come to the table, get the leaders to come to the table and talk about this stuff. Um, I just don't see that happening. I see it as, as, as chaos. And, and I don't know why that is, but I think it's just for what I said before, is that when it, it doesn't come to people's minds that, gee, maybe we ought to call in some peacemakers or mediators or facilitators to help us 
have a conversation in our community about all of this and, and you know, really talk about this stuff in a, and, and try to de-escalate ourselves. I don't people people just don't think about that, and so and people don't think that there are, don't know that there are all, many alternatives to protesting, uh, or to, to resisting protest, and certainly there are alternatives to violence that that could probably get the, a community closer to what everybody wants than by acting out. We're just not we just don't have it embedded in our consciousness that there are other ways of dealing with these kinds of problems that are probably more productive than getting out on the street and protesting or opposing protests and, and you know, the, the subsequent violence that comes from that. And, and that's really sad, but it is true. And, uh, again, our brains are hardwired a, a certain way, and unless you have really skilled people who can intervene, we're just going to act out our evolutionary biology. And that's the problem. I see the the city of Portland, unfortunately, is mentioned every day now, uh, and it's a relatively small group of people who are protesting and uh, perpetrating the violence, but it, it doesn't seem to end, and I know this causes tremendous frustration in the average citizen who looks at a situation like this and and wonders, well, why can't they just uh, arrest everybody? Why can't they? Uh, yeah, not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the more important question is in Portland is why hasn't somebody come forward to meet with the protesters, for example, especially if it's a relatively small group, and start talking to them about what they're really seeking, what do they really want, and, and what are their choices about getting what they want? And right now, protests are just being driven by an inchoate anger at the injustice of, let's just say, embedded racism in the country. And people are just angry. And they're really not thinking about what is it that we really want and what is it that we really need. And that's where a skilled facilitator could help them concretize what it is that they're angry about help them to de-escalate their anger to not to get rid of it, because as I said, it may be a righteous anger, but to at least de-escalate it to a point where people can engage in, in a, something other than violent protest to, to satisfy what it is that they need. And, I mean, Portland's a pretty enlightened place, in my opinion. I'm just kind of amazed that the city hasn't engaged people to come in, and, and or maybe they haven't. Maybe it's just not making the media, so I don't know about it. But it just seems to me that that's the logical step. And the same thing, you know, the same conversations happen on the side of law enforcement and, and you know, both both at the municipal level and the, and the federal people that came in. Um, have the same conversation and find out what's really going on and see if, see if there can be a meeting uh, that allows for an expression of anger and frustration and injustice, allows for that to be validated, and then get past that into problem solving. What's, I think the reason that Portland, Portland's a, a classic case of, of you've got a group of people who have formed an identity around conflict. And when the reason that the conflict will not resolve is because if you resolve the conflict, these people lose meaning. They're, the meaning of their lives in this moment are gone. And, and 
so one of the things that have to happen in a process is, is that they have to be given, they have to create new identities. Remember I talked about the need to create meaning. Well, here it is. The, the need to create meaning in their lives is the protest over police violence uh, and, 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 you know, and racism. Uh, so now they're, this, by getting this meaning, they get, these, they, get, they get this dopamine rush. They get, their brains are activated, um, and they're not going to give that up. Because it feels good to, to have that meaning, that special transcendent meaning. This is this is a common common problem of recurring conflict and intractable conflict. We've seen it in the Middle East. I mean, one of the reasons why the Middle East conflicts between Israel and other countries has been difficult is because so many people have created identities around the conflict, and as a result. Uh, you can't negotiate identity. And if you negotiate peace, the identity, the meaning goes away, and people now feel lost and empty. So part of the, part of the process has to be helping people recognize that psychological dynamic around their identities and helping them form new identities. What's it look, what's it look like to live in a city of peace? What's it look like to live in a city of collaboration rather than a city of opposition and polarization and violence? And those are the conversations that have to happen, and they can only happen with skilled facilitators, of which there are a number in Portland. Colleagues of mine are perfectly capable of doing this um, that live in the Portland area, and yet, for, for whatever reason, it doesn't occur to the authorities to, to, to make room for this kind of a conversation. Unfortunately, um, what I've learned over the years is that, well, there, Law enforcement agencies are faced with a lot of conflicting demands. The post stamps, police officer standard training, which uh, exists in every state, require when officers go through police academy training, they're required to learn de-escalation skills. Unfortunately, the de-escalation trainers don't know what they're talking about. And they, they are, I mean, I don't mean to be cruel or mean, but they really are ignorant and they're not up on science, and they're teaching stuff. It's what they learned based on psychological concepts that are scientifically not supportable, and they don't work. And, and, and because they don't work, officers look askance at de-escalation strategies that do work because everything that they've been taught doesn't work, and they know it. And so that's why they have to resort to violence and power because the strategies that they were taught are ineffective. When I teach officers how to de-escalate and they actually engage in the practices and master them, they have they report radically different results in their encounters with potentially violent situations. So we know it works, but it's a problem of of the the training the training they get in this topic on this area of Interpersonal communication, de-escalation, and listening is so poor that it sours them uh, on any other kind of post-academy training that might work. To them, it's touchy-feely, it's weak, it doesn't work, and they're, and, and they're really pretty close-minded about it. Uh, and it's sad because the stuff that I teach is all brand new. I mean, it, uh, I discovered these techniques by accident in 2004, the brain scanning studies that came out to support what I'm teaching and what's actually going on in the brain with Matthew Lieberman and his lab at UCLA it came out in 2007. I mean, this stuff is not even, you know, it's barely 13, 14, 15 years old. It's brand new. 
And so, it, you know, we're fighting against pop psychology and Freudian concepts that are absolutely wrong. In fact, they're worse than wrong. They're destructive that have been around for over a century, embedded into our culture, and including law enforcement culture. And so overcoming all of that, that inertia of all that wrong information is extremely difficult. Um, but to the degree that law enforcement people learn this stuff and use it, they, uh, they report amazingly transformational results. So I have hope. It's just going to take time for this stuff to seep into our consciousness and get people motivated to learn this stuff. What is new today, you know, in 20 years is going to be sort of accepted, accepted wisdom, conventional wisdom. But today it's too new, it's too radical, it's too different. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. And, and it's unfortunate because there are ways of teaching, training law enforcement how to diffuse angry situations so that they don't have to become violent. I'm not saying, and I'm not saying they shouldn't learn what they learn because they have to. But the question is, can we put more tools in the officer's toolbox so that the escalation happens at a slower pace if it has to happen at all? And and that's that's the challenge. So, for example, if you're dealing with you're dealing with protesters out on the street, all all you know, the all the police officers know is when I see violence, I respond with violence. And obviously. So hopefully it's controlled, but but still, there are ways of confronting potential violence in nonviolent ways that are probably more effective. And we're just dealing we're dealing with cultural problems, cultural resistance to these ideas. Something that you mentioned also in our last segment was when you were talking about <clears throat> how people have formed an identity. Uh, in a conflict situation, and if they're fighting police violence and police violence stops, uh, all of a sudden their identity is gone. Um, how can you help create a new identity for people, um, particularly in, in situations of chaos and what is happening in, in Portland where uh, people are saying, Authorities are saying that these are anarchists who are only interested in bringing down right. the structure and, and system. Right. It's not easy. Uh, the conversation has to be around looking, creating a future, a vision, a future vision. So you'd have you, you the, and so the kind of conversation is to, to first of all de-escalate people, calm them down, then. Start asking questions. Well, tell me what what would it be like to see, let's say Portland, for example, to see Portland as a place of of um, fairness and justice, whatever that means. <laughs> I don't like to use that term, but but to be to be a place where people can feel like there the six the six needs of victims are, are met. There's no there's no violence. There's no retaliation. People feel vindicated, validated. They feel like they're being listened to. They feel like Living in Portland gives them meaning, and they feel safe. What would that look like to you? And is that is that is a place like that a place that you would want to live in? And you know, depending upon how people answer that, they, no one's ever asked them that question before, and so they've got to sit there and think about it. Is this is that the kind of 
city that that I want to live in. And then you would ask, and, and if that's not what you, the place you would like to live in, what kind of place would you like to live in? And no one's ever asked them that question either. And so, so by asking these questions, you engage people into thinking about what is it that I really want? What would I really like to see? And as they start to articulate what they're feeling and what it would feel like to live in a city, for example, without violence, that's where you can start changing the identity. You can say, what would it be like for you to lead a process that gets Portland moving in that direction? What would it be like to be at the forefront of a movement that moved towards collaboration and cooperation and peace? And and the ability to recognize profound political differences, but without resorting to violence. And the ability to address either real or perceived um, injustices quickly and efficiently and fairly with processes that are embedded in the culture of the community. And, and so by asking those questions, you start engaging people in thinking about the future. And if you can help them create a picture of what their role in that future would be, you can oftentimes make them a solution, part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Now, I'm, you know, I'm taking just a few minutes to talk about a very complex, challenging, difficult process. But that's, that's fundamentally how you would go about it. And um, it, it's not, there's no guarantee of success, um, but it's the process that has to be attempted. What we know about from brain science over the last 20 years is, is how, how people process conflict and how they process peace. And what, we, what a skilled facilitator can do is use the knowledge of the true knowledge of human nature and how the brain, our brains and bodies actually function to help people overcome um, react, the, the reactive behaviors that lead them into conflict in the first place. You know, so when we talk, for example, if you talk about an issue around racism, very, very difficult, painful topic. But racism is, is, a, is a word that symbolizes many, many, many different topics underneath the idea of racism. It has to do with power. It has to do with people having a voice and being listened to and being heard. It has to do with legal concepts such as equal opportunity uh, and being treated equally. It has to do with concepts of distributive justice. Um, and so, so racism has many, 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 many different layers to it that really don't get unpacked and talked about because people just become reactive around the idea of racism. And so people who are oppressed, people of color, for example, have righteous anger. And people who have been in power or promote racism, white supremacists, have the same feelings of righteous anger because they feel like Many of them feel like their quality of life or their identity is being threatened by multiculturalism. And without judging any of these different perspectives, uh, really what has to happen is for people to get into a room where they can talk about this stuff and get into these layers and really understand 
what's going on. And, and that's where the change occurs. Uh, and it's not easy. It's hard, hard work. People, uh, I said earlier that it takes, uh, I might have said this in the break, that the problem with peacemaking and the problem with having these conversations is that it takes enormous courage. It's very scary to confront your adversary. Uh, and that's because most people cannot self-regulate. Most people are emotionally incompetent. Most people are not emotionally intelligent. And so, and these are all emotional situations. So they have no skills and no ability to regulate themselves and to be present with people who may not be able to regulate themselves. And that's what, that's what the, the facilitator, the peacemaker, the media, that's why that person is there who hopefully has the knowledge and skill and presence to be able to work with people who are unregulated. They cannot self-regulate. They are emotionally incompetent and help them work through all of this so that they can have these very, very difficult, deep conversations about, about these problems and work, eventually work towards solutions that everybody can buy into. And then you get into a, 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 the next level of problems is let's suppose you get the leaders in the room, but now you have to be careful that the leaders don't go get out too far out on the wave because I have seen this happen many times where you can get the leaders of various organizations or factions or institutions together, and within three or four hours, they're in agreement, and they're best friends. And what's happened is because they've done the work together they see the vision, but what they haven't done is gone out and talked to their constituencies, their stakeholders. And when they come back, their stakeholders look at them and say, you sold us out. You sold us out. And, and, and the stakeholder, you know, the, the leaders get shot and replaced with somebody else. I mean, you can just look at this and look at, look at national politics, the Tea, the tea Party movement. Or people who are, are, are not radical enough, they, they, they come in and they recognize that politics is a game of compromise. And they and those that compromise get tossed out of office, and even more intransigent people are elected, and that's what causes the polarization. Same thing at same thing at the committee level, for example, in Portland. So the facilitators that are engaged in this have to be not only working with the leaders and having helping them have conversations, but have to be working with the stakeholder groups and bringing them along as well. And you have to bring, and you, so you can just see there's this push and pull and tug that goes on that takes time and patience and great skill and great courage uh, to, 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 to move a community in this direction. And it's not something that just happens overnight. And that's the third problem is that people are impatient. You know, we live in a microwave society where there's instant gratification. And Peacemaking of this kind is not instant gratification. It's a very slow, sometimes painful, boring, tedious process. That's why the media hates peacemaking. You will never read in the media a description of a peacemaking process or, say, coming into Portland and, and having these conversations because it's boring to read about. It's not, it's not nearly as – it doesn't grab eyeballs like watching police in armor march up a street and knock – knock the crap out of the protesters. That grabs eyeballs. Um, sitting down at the table and talking about this stuff does not grab eyeballs. And so the media hates peace. I've, I learned this the hard way many, many years ago. And that's the third problem. 
So, so it's not going to get media attention. It's not very exciting to watch, and it takes a lot of time and patience, and people are impatient. And so you just have to work through all of this stuff, and, and you have to have a commitment from the stakeholders that they are going to be in this process, that it is going to be slow, it is going to take time, it may be costly, and but the, but the result is probably going to be worth it. But people don't know what the result is going to be, and so oftentimes they are not going to. They they can't. It's hard for them to commit to stay in the process. Like I said, it takes a lot of skill, and it's it's a you know very challenging. It, but it, but it happens. It works. It does work. There are plenty of examples where 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 there you know these kinds of problems have been solved. Um, and then and, and of course then the next level is since since municipalities like Portland, are by nature political. They're being governed by political animals that turn over. You've got a turnover every three or four years, four years of the city council and the mayor and the leadership and all that stuff. How do you how do you keep this moving into the future when there's going to be turnover? And there are going to be different political perspectives that, uh, from different politicians who are elected to office. How do you embed this in a culture such that they that no matter who is in office, there is an underlying philosophy or culture of peace that is embedded in the community in such a way that politicians just accept that as what it is and will not will not violate the norms of the culture. You can begin to see the complexity of all of this uh, and how difficult it is, which is probably why municipalities don't think about it. The municipal leaders don't think about this stuff. They're not trained in it, of course. They may not even be aware of it, but also it's daunting work. And and just, but I would say that just because it's daunting doesn't mean that it shouldn't be attempted. Just because it's difficult and maybe even close to a puzzle doesn't mean we shouldn't try, because the alternative is what we have today, which is not satisfactory to anybody. No, it's, I, I think the phrase that you used is that it takes courage to make peace. Yeah, uh, to allow people to have hope. See the vision. These are the the challenges that are, are facing all communities and, and all people. In your book, where you say that humans are ninety eight percent emotional and two percent rational. Uh, when we think about human nature, we we don't think it is this out of balance. Um, what do you mean by that? And in your experience, is this what you found? In my work, especially in my research, when I was uh, back in the late 90s when I was working on my master's degree, uh, the what I learned was that neuroscientists at that time, I mean 20 years ago, were realizing that we are emotional beings first and rational beings second, and that all of the teachings of Western philosophy around rationality were wrong. And what science now shows us is that we are we are driven by we are <laughs> I, I don't want to get too scientific here or too crazy we are basically emotional creatures with small moments of rationality and that we can't even make a rational decision unless we're emotional first 
And this flies in the face of, of Western culture, the foundation of Western culture. I mean, Aristotle said that what separates man from animal is rationality. It's just not true. What separates man from animal is emotion. Human beings are the only creatures that have true emotion, as, 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 as scientists define it. Um, it's true that we all, humans and other vertebrates, all have affect, which is a physiological state. But it's only humans that have emotion. And it's emotion that separates us from other species. And, of course, we're rational, too. But that's, not that, but that's just a very small part of who we are. And once we make that mind shift that we're emotional beings, then all of these judgments about behavior go away. We no longer say somebody's irrational. Well, we say, oh, they're just being emotional right now. Because when we're highly emotional, the prefrontal cortex is shut down. And the limbic system and all the various parts of the polyvagal system, all the various parts of the, of the human system, not just the brain, but the central nervous system and the peripheral systems, all... Um, all activate in different ways with different networks to have these different kinds of experiences. And, and because of our evolution, um, we become emotional as a response to environmental cues out there that, uh, that alert us to potential danger, whether or not there's physical danger or not. So the first, tri the first secret is to recognize that we are emotional beings and not rational beings. Then that leads us to some really interesting observations. The first is that our educational system is completely screwed up. Rationality is, comes out of a, brain, a, a series of neural networks called a task-focused system, which is basically all about how to solve problems. So that, and that's what school is all about. It's about knowledge acquisition. It's about um, critical thinking, scientific method different kinds of logic, you know, deductive and inductive logic. It's about linear problem solving. All these different skills and methodologies for solving problems educates our task-focused system. But nothing in our, I won't say nothing, very little in our educational system develops the social system of the brain or what's known as the default mode part of our brain, which is what is online <laughs> pretty much all the time. And the rational part of our brain is not online. The rational, in order to become rational, we have to consciously invoke the task-focused system. Otherwise, we're just operating in the emotional system. So this emotional or default, it's called default mode, or I call it the social system, um, learning empathy, learning how to listen to emotions, learning what emotions are, learning how to build emotional databases, that we have to build emotional databases in order to be emotionally competent, all these skills. They are tangentially taught in our educational system through the arts. Or a little bit through literature, um, but through music, dance, theater, they are indirect ways of exposing students to emotional experiences, but without ever being explicit about it. And so as a consequence, we now have this mindset that we are rational beings, um, that to be emotional is to be weak, to be emotional is to be something less than human. That was that came from Plato. Uh, and... and you know, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, the guy who constructed the Catholic theology, uh, he was a Neoplatonist. He wasn't a Christian. I mean, if you just read your history, you'll find out that he, he, everything that he drew upon was from Neoplatonism or from Plato. And he wrote that the only way to get to heaven is to reason. And the only people who could reason were men. I mean, he was the original, uh, not the original, but he was, you know, all those people were horribly mis misogynistic. You know, women, women were chattel. 
they were animals. They they weren't. They didn't have you know, and that's the way people thought for for thousands and thousands of years. Turns out all of that is wrong. And not only is it wrong, it's been incredibly abusive. Because because today. I mean, we're just looking at this dysfunction of this pandemic and what's going on when families are now cloistered together and the abuse. Uh, there's a lot of abuse that's going on because people don't know how to regulate their own emotions because they've never been trained how to regulate their emotions. They've never been trained that being emotional is what it means to be human. And therefore, the skills, the emotional competency that I talk about are, is required in order to navigate life successfully. None of that is talked about. And that's, that's the problem we have. And that's a serious, serious flaw in our culture that needs rectifying if we want to move to a different level of relationship with each other. Again, this is all brand new stuff. I mean, the, the, and I didn't make up the term 98% emotional, 2% reaction. That comes from Antonio Damasio, who's a, he's a medical doctor and neuroscientist at USC in Southern California. And I mean, the guy's just a friggin' genius. But his work and Joseph Ledoux and a whole bunch of other uh, guys that have been studying this stuff for the last 20 and 30 years are coming up with these groundbreaking insights that shatter the myth of Western culture. And what I do is I just wrote a note today to a neuroscientist. Said, My job is to take your research and turn it into practical application. And so that's what I do. So that's. That's what I mean by 98% emotional and 2% rational. And, and as I say, as, when you make that mind shift and begin to recognize that, the, you're, everything you, every, every, everything changes. And that's, of course, we observed this in the prison project. You know, we started teaching murderers how to be peacemakers, recognizing that we taught them about emotionality and, and managing strong emotions. And they completely changed. The light bulbs went, oh, I understand why I'm in prison now. I get it. No wonder I was screwed up. I, my mind was all turned on. I was having completely wrong perspectives. And once they get the right perspective, they shift. And they change. I mean, we've got a 1,000 inmates that have been released that have gone through our training. Zero reports of recidivism. Not one inmate that we've trained has reoffended. It's been wow. It, uh, That's how powerful this stuff is. It, it really is. And I, I wish we could go on for another hour or more. I mean, this uh, I so appreciate, Doug, that you've joined us today and shared all this. It's just, uh, it's, it's amazing. And um, and I know in your book you also help parents on uh, yeah. how to deal with teenagers. And That's a whole other two hours of talking about it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and how to help families and friends who are emotional. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. So so much for joining us today. I you're welcome. Really appreciate the gifts that you're giving all of our listeners. Thank you. Um, these are foundational skills that have application in every aspect of life, and so it's they're worth it's worth the time to learn learn about them and to be competent in them, because it will I, I guarantee it will transform the life of any person that wants to learn this stuff. So, beyond words published. Escalate, for which I'm eternally grateful. If people want to find out more about me, dougnoll.com, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com, uh, or go to Beyond Words and learn more about the book there. Mm-hmm.